Well, it's my uh, privilege to uh, welcome Brett Kunkel up this morning. He's going to be teaching us this morning. Uh, Brett and Aaron and their family have been part of our church for about 10 years now and just an absolutely wonderful uh, family. Many of you know them well. And, and Brett has been a, just a wonderful resource to us as well. And, um, you know, we're doing this three-week series on, on Scripture and its role in our lives. And I gave us a little window into Jesus' own view of Scripture last week. And Brett's going to give us a fuller picture of, of all the other reasons why um, we, can, we have good reason to trust our Bible. So I'll, I'll leave it with you. Right. Thanks, David. Uh, yeah, my wife and I are okay. I don't know about our kids. They're so-so. Um, uh, this is actually a really unique experience. I am not only teaching here this morning, but I'm also teaching the high schoolers right now. So there's, uh, we, we, I double booked myself. And so we, my, my son, Micah, filmed me teaching yesterday. And so we're showing that to the high schoolers. So uh, multiplying our efforts here. Um, and I love teaching the youth. Uh, I'm passionate about young people. In fact, I want to point you to a study that was done by the Barna Research Group. And uh, Dave Kinnaman, the president there, uh, wrote a book that kind of uh, outlined the results of this study. The book was entitled, You Lost Me, Why Young Christians Are Leaving Church and Rethinking Faith. And uh, the researchers summarized the, the, the reasons into kind of six categories of why young people are leaving the faith. They found that six in 10 young people leave the church either permanently or for an extended period of time beginning at age 15. And so the, they, they uncovered six significant themes. And I want to just list those for you. Here's the first one. Number one, isolationism. Uh, One-fourth of 18 to 29-year-olds say church demonizes everything outside church, including the uh, music, movies, culture, and technology that define their generation. Number two was shallowness. One-third call church boring. About one-fourth say faith is irrelevant and Bible teaching is unclear. One-fifth say God is absent from their church experience. Number three was anti-science. Up to one-third say the church is out of step on scientific developments and debates. Number four was sex, sexuality. The church is perceived as simplistic and judgmental. For a fifth or more, a just-say-no philosophy is insufficient in a techno-porno world. Number five, exclusivity. Three in ten young people feel the church is too exclusive in this pluralistic and multicultural age. And the same number feel forced to choose between their faith and their friends. And then number six was doubt. The church is not a safe place to express doubts. Say over one-third of young people and one-fourth have serious doubts they'd like to discuss. And it was pointed out to me that all six of those reasons are intellectual in nature. Young people are walking away for intellectual reasons. And, uh, and it's, there are other reasons as well, but, but every one of these has to do with intellectual reasons. And I hear well-meaning, well-intentioned church leaders who will say things like, you know, the Christian faith is not, uh, it's really not about knowledge and, and what you know, but it's really about experiencing Jesus and these kinds of things. And uh, uh, number one, from my experience over the last 15, 16 years of working with the, the, uh, uh, Christian churches around the country, uh, let me humbly submit that that is not our problem. 
Our problem isn't that our churches are just filled with people who are just so intellectual and, and are just filled with so much knowledge but don't really focus on the experience of Jesus. In fact, I, I think we might be more anti-intellectual than we actually realize. But then number two, this data suggests that we are not overly intellectual, right? Because young people are walking away for those reasons. And so what we are trying to do in this series uh, is develop strong convictions in our body that uh, the Bible is the authoritative word of God. And so we're going to make a case for that. Okay, we're going we're to try and build a strong case for that. Um, but for those of you in here who are wrestling with questions and doubts, because, I mean, let's just be honest, uh, given our cultural context and how the culture constantly chips away at our confidence in the Bible, there are those of you here who are wrestling with serious questions and doubts. And I just want to say to you, if that is you, that's okay. It's okay to have questions about the Bible. In fact, I think our churches should be the safest place for us to get our questions and doubts out on the table without being beat up for them. That's what I want my home to be for my kids, right? I, I want my kids to feel like the safest place for them to ever express their doubts is in my home with me and my wife. Because I know that if I shut down my, quid, my kids' questions and doubts, if I shut them down, they don't stop asking questions. They just stop asking me questions. And then they'll go to the culture. They'll Google it. They'll ask Siri, right? So they don't stop asking questions. And, and, and the body of Christ, if we really have confidence that the word of God is true, then there's nothing to be afraid of when it comes to questions and doubts. So at the outset of this, even though I'm going to try to lay out a strong case, I want you to know if you're wrestling with this issue, that's okay. But let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. And I want to I try and draw a, a connection here and play this out a little bit more, this connection between our knowledge of something and our relationship with it. Because I think this is a false dichotomy to say, well, it's not about knowledge, it's about experiencing relationship. That's a false dichotomy. Let me give you an example, okay? I want you to look at this gentleman. How many of you in here know this gentleman? Raise your hand if you know this guy. Okay, good. I'm glad no one raised their hand. It would have been really weird if you would have raised your hand because I just grabbed this picture from Google. <laughs> so if you would have said, yeah, I know that guy, I would have had to get a new picture. Um, okay, so nobody knows this guy. So what does that mean? He is a stranger. He's a stranger. You don't know him. I don't know him. What if after the service, this guy approaches you out in the, the lobby uh, out in the courtyard, and he says, hey, um, here's what I need you to do. I need you to do two or three things for me. What's your response going to be to the stranger? You're probably going to say, uh, no, nah, I don't think so. Um, who are you, right? Now, why is that? If a stranger comes and asks you to do something or tells you to do something for them, why don't you do it? Why don't you feel obligated to obey whatever they ask of you? Because you don't have the relevant knowledge of this person. This person's a stranger, so therefore they don't have any authority, right? In the same way, let's take this and apply this to Scripture. For how many of us in here does Scripture turn out to be largely a stranger to us? Is the Bible a stranger to you and to me? 
And to the degree that, to which the Bible is a stranger or we lack the knowledge of the Bible, to that degree will we not give it authority in our lives. Right? Now, here's a different situation. Okay? This is a picture with someone I know very well. Right? My wife, Erin. And uh, if Aaron comes up to me and says, uh, Brett, here's what I need you to do. <laughs> my response is really different. Right? And I know some of you are thinking, yeah, because if you don't do it, you're going to get in trouble. Okay. Number one, don't project your marital problems onto me. Okay. <laughs> All right. But no, there, there, there's hopefully more to it than, okay, I'm going to get in trouble. There's a relationship. There's the relevant knowledge I have of this person. And so I've given her authority in my life uh, for certain things, right? And, and our knowledge of other people helps us to put our trust in those people. In fact, it tells us about the nature of our relationship. So if you said to me, hey, Brett, tell me about your wife, Erin. And I said, oh, Erin, yeah, my wife, she's... She's 5'6". She has blonde hair. Uh, she's got two eyes. Uh, yeah, that's my wife. <laughs> you, you'd laugh, and then you say, no, no, really tell me about your wife. And I said, well, that, that's about all I got. <laughs> if that were the case, you would draw conclusions about my relationship with her, wouldn't you? Because we know there's a proper foundation of knowledge. And that knowledge is not merely intellectual. There's experiential knowledge that's involved with that. But it's nothing less. And so you see how relevant knowledge and familiarity is with authority. So now let's take this and apply this to Scripture. So we have this claim that the Bible is God's Word. And often we're guilty of simply making that claim and not helping people to really understand that claim. And then giving them good reason to affirm that claim. And there's, there's a younger generation that you can actually assume that they don't hold to the authority of the Bible. And so what we need to do is we need to say more than that the Bible is God's word and therefore it's an authority. In fact, here's what I want to do. I want to look at this question of what is the nature of authority? How does something derive its authority? How do we end up giving authority over to something? How can something be an objective authority? Meaning it's an authoritative source whether I even affirm it or not. Can there be objective authorities? And so let's think about this question of authority for a second. Take the, take the example of a command. If a command is issued, what, uh, what causes me to have obligations to obey that command? So let me give you a, an example here. Let's say you're at your, your favorite Chinese food restaurant and you've just finished the meal and you pull out the fortune cookies, right? You pull out the fortune cookies, you crack it open, you pull out the fortune, and the fortune says, get up and leave now, <laughs> all right? How many of you are like, yeah, okay, the fortune cookie said it, I believe it, that settles it, right? And you're out. <laughs> no, you're, I, I'm get well, unless you're superstitious or something, or a little weird, you're not going to say, well, we better obey the command here on the fortune cookie, you might say, okay, that was weird. You know, the fortune cookie maker is having some fun here or something. But you're not going to obey that command, right? There's no obligation to obey that command. All right, so let's change the scenario. Same command, 
But now the lady sitting at the table next to you looks at you and says, hey, get up and leave now. How many of you say, okay, ma'am, I'm out of here? No, I'm guessing we're going to have a different question. We're going to have a question for her. We're going to say, wait a second, who are you? Right? I don't know you. Who are you? Why are you telling me to get up? Now, what if she says to you, I'm just another customer here. I don't really like you guys. Would you please get up and leave? Now, do you feel like, okay, yeah, we have an obligation to go? No. She's not the appropriate authority to back that command up. But now let's change the scenario. Same command. Get up and leave now. This lady says, get up and leave now. You say, who are you? And she pulls out a badge and says, I'm a DEA agent. We're about to bust the owner of this Chinese food restaurant for drug dealing. Get up and leave now. Does that change things? Yeah, you get up and leave, right? Because now you have the appropriate authority that stands behind the command. And so this reflection helps us to understand that uh, authority, the implication here is that authority is derived from the appropriate person with the uh, proper credentials. That's where we get authority from. It has to be a person. It can't be an inanimate object, right? I don't have obligations to the piano or to my computer or to our fortune cookie, right? It has to be a person And they have to be the appropriate person with the proper credentials. They have to have the qualifications that make them suitable for something. Okay, now let's take those insights and let's apply them now back to the Bible. All right, so the claim is that the Bible is God's authoritative word. Now, what does the Bible deal with? The Bible deals with all the big questions of life, doesn't it? I mean, it answers life's most fundamental questions. We can maybe categorize those into five major worldview questions. It addresses the question of origin. Why is there something rather than nothing? Where does everything come from? It addresses the question of identity. What does it mean to be human? Right? And that, that's a huge question that our culture is having right now. Thirdly, meaning. What's the purpose of all this? Uh, A fourth question is morality. Is there a way I ought to live? Is there a way we should live? Uh, And then lastly, destiny. Okay, when this is all said and done, when I die, is is anything else uh, waiting for me? Is there life after death? These are the the five kind of huge, big worldview questions that human beings have been asking for thousands of years. And the Bible certainly addresses every one of those questions, doesn't it? It offers us a picture of Reality, the way the world should be. It offers us what it, uh, the, the true story of, of, of human history and the, the history of the universe. And so if that's the case, if those are the circumstances surrounding this book, then the question becomes, okay, who is the appropriate authority that can speak on those matters? Well, then that's where it makes sense that we would say, well, well God is, right? If there is a God who exists then he, and he's the one who is responsible for bringing humanity into existence, then it seems like he would be the person who is the appropriate person in the appropriate authority. And then furthermore, we would also say he also has the credentials, right? In fact, philosophers refer to God as the greatest conceivable being or the maximally great being. Which means that there is no greater being that you can even conceive of than God. He has all the 
uh, what philosophers call the great making properties. Think about his attributes, right? He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's omnipresent. His influence fills the entire universe. He's eternal. He's self-existing. He owes his existence to no one else. I mean, and on and on and on. There is no greater being that you can even imagine who's greater than God. And so he's got the credentials, right? So here we have this claim that the Bible is God's word. But now we filled it in a little bit more here. Okay, the Bible is God's word, and God uh, would seem to be the appropriate authority that can stand behind this book. And therefore, if he's the authority that stands behind this book, that's why it, it has authority, because it's his word. Okay, are you with me? Okay. So then now here's the big question. What reason should we think this book is his word? Because are we the only ones that claim that we have an instance of divine revelation? No. My Mormon neighbor will claim that they have divine revelation in the Book of Mormon. A a, a Muslim will claim that they have divine revelation from Allah in the Quran. So we're not the only one who make these claims to divine revelation. So is there any evidence that we can point to? Are, any, are there any clues that would suggest that the Bible is indeed the word of God and therefore it's authoritative? So what I want to do for the rest of the time is, is kind of look and just do a quick survey of some of this evidence. Because I think when you, when you look at it uh, and, and when you gain the relevant knowledge you'll see that we have a powerful and compelling case that this is no ordinary book. Okay, so let me outline that case. I'm going to touch on a a number of these. We are only going to have time to just do a quick survey, okay? Uh, Whole books are written on on these subjects. So I'll do a survey, though, but I want you to see uh, that there are a, a, a number, at least a dozen or so solid reasons that we can point to that would make the argument that this is the authoritative word of God. So, number one, we're going to look at God's existence and how that relates to this being a source of authority. You could make the argument what's called the self-authenticating nature of Scripture. We're going to look at preservation, uh, the preservation of Scripture. You can look at the internal historical corroboration of Scripture. You can look at the external historical corroboration. We'll look at those two. Uh, You can look at the societal impact, the impact that this book has had, particularly on Western civilization. You can look at the individual transformation, people's lives who have been changed by their encounter with this book. So individual transformation. Uh, Real-world correspondence. This is where we, we take the claims of the Bible as knowledge claims about reality, and we see that there's a correspondence with reality. And this testifies to the truthfulness of this book. The unity of the book that we'll hit on. Uh, We can actually have an internal testimony of the Holy Spirit that gives us knowledge that this is true. Uh, Prophetic fulfillment, prophecies that have been fulfilled are evidence that this is no ordinary book. And then as Dave mentioned last Sunday, uh, he, he laid out the argument from the testimony of Jesus. If Jesus is indeed the risen Lord of the universe, then we have good reason to take his word. And he bears witness to the Bible as the authority. And so this is the, what we call the cumulative case. And we can point to all of these things 
to give us confidence. The Bible is God's word. So let's just survey a few of these. Let's start with God's existence, okay? And let's compare and contrast atheism, which is the denial of God's existence, with theism. Atheism, if we were to summarize it, would say this. It would say, the universe came into existence from no one, out of nothing, and for uh, no reason. All right? And that, I, I could directly quote atheists for you who hold that view. So I'm not just kind of putting up a straw man of their view. This is the view of many atheists. All right? Now, what is the view of theism? Theism would say, well, the universe was brought into existence by a personal, powerful creator outside the natural realm for a purpose. Now, why do we start with God's existence? Well, because if atheism is true, the claim that we have an instance of divine revelation can't even get off the ground, right? So atheism would provide a context that would actually argue against divine revelation. But if atheism is false and theism is true, then the claim that there is divine revelation fits in that worldview, right? So theism, the idea that there's a personal, powerful creator, is is a necessary precondition for divine revelation. If there is no God, there is no God's word. Pretty basic, right? Now, guess what? Not only would I say theism is the appropriate context, I would also say that theism is actually more reasonable and rational than atheism. There's powerful evidence that God exists, and we need to be aware of it because I think when you are aware of the powerful evidence for God's existence, it'll actually increase your confidence in his word. Uh, Let's take the claim that God exists. The claim that God exists, let's be very clear, Uh, the claim that God exists is a claim about the nature of reality. Notice, the claim that God exists is different than the claim uh, where I say, I believe in God. Those are two very different claims. When I say, I believe in God, that claim is about me. It's about my psychological states or what I mentally affirm. But when I say God exists, that's independent of what I think or I affirm. It's an objective claim about the nature of reality, right? And I want us to move from simply saying, well, well, I believe in God. I want us to be able to say, not do I just believe in God, but I know that God is real. That's a very different claim. How, how can we make such a claim? Well, what changes belief into knowledge? It's reasons and evidence. Uh, Philosophers will uh, define knowledge as justified, true belief. So look, if I believe that God exists, uh, not only do I believe it, but if it turns out to be true, I've got a true belief. But I want more than just true belief. I want to know. And what what, uh, changes that? What transforms that? It's justification or the reasons that we have. And so I have all kinds of reasons and justification and evidence to put my trust in my wife and have knowledge that she's faithful or loyal or virtuous or whatever. In the same way, we can have that same kind of knowledge about God. And so we need to be familiar and we need to pass on to our children the arguments for God's existence, the evidence that Paul talks about in Romans 1. He says we can see God's eternal power and divine nature, it's clearly seen from what has been 
made, right? And so we have arguments like the cosmological argument, the fine-tuning argument. The fine-tuning of the universe points to a fine-tuner. The design in the universe points to a designer. Uh, the moral laws of the universe point to a moral lawgiver. These are just some of a dozen solid arguments for God's existence that we need to be familiar with. In addition, not only do the arguments for God's existence tell us that God is real, they also give us knowledge about God. So take the fine-tuning argument, for instance. The fine-tuning argument says that the, 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 the universe is kind of balanced on this razor's edge. It's been finely tuned for the existence of life. Okay? What, would that, what does that communicate to us about the creator of the universe? He's finely tuned the universe to be hospitable to life, such that if the, 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 the fine-tuning was different, if the cosmological constant was just a different a little bit, there'd be no life in this universe, right? The moral argument tells us that he's a moral being. The cosmological argument tells us that he's an intelligent, powerful being. So from these different arguments for God's existence, we, 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 we not only are convinced that he does exist, but that he is also a transcendent, intelligent, powerful, and personal and moral being. And so now, in that kind of theistic context, do you see how expectations for divine revelation fit very well? Right? We actually, I think what it does is it generates us an expectation that this kind of being has an interest in maybe revealing more about himself. Guess what? All kinds of religions claim he has. Very interesting. And, and, and not, not only do these, does this knowledge generate these expectations that he re, would reveal more about himself, but we also find ourselves in a predicament, don't we? Human beings are in a predicament. We live in a, a broken down, corrupted world, and we're in trouble, and we need rescuing. We need help. And if we have good reason to think that there's a God who's interested in us, then it makes sense that we would have some expectation that somehow he's going to communicate to us. And so the idea here is that, 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 that theism, the idea that God exists, creates these expectations and strengthens our convictions that God has indeed communicated. So that's just one reason. And of course, we could spend a lot more time on that. Let's, but let's go to a second one. Let's go to the issue of preservation. If God has given us his word, he's certainly going to have interest in preserving it through time, right? So the message isn't lost. And so when we look at preservation, what we have to do is look at the, the, uh, the discipline of what we call textual criticism. Just kind of fancy words for how scholars reconstruct an ancient document. So Paul writes a letter in maybe around 50 AD. Or the gospel writers write in the first century, do we have the originals? No. But, of course, that's the same for any ancient document from the Greco-Roman world. We don't have any originals. So then how do we know that I'm, we're reading, when we read out of Scripture today, how, how do we know we're reading what was originally written? This is what textual critics do. They try to reconstruct the original. Now, how would they do that? Well, they use three primary criteria. Here they are. Number one, they're going to look at the, the number of manuscript copies we have for any certain document. And this is not just for the Bible. This is for any document out of antiquity. So how many manuscripts do we have? Because the more manuscripts you have, 
the better your chances are of reconstructing the original, right? Comparing and contrasting and reconstructing the original. But then secondly, you want to know how early are the manuscripts? So if uh, somebody writes and then our earliest copy is five, six, seven hundred years later, well, that gives quite a bit of time for corruption to creep into the manuscript tradition, right? So the earlier, the better. And then lastly, you look at the nature of the variations, how significant are the variations? You're going to have variations. Uh, these are just hand-copied manuscripts, so, so variations are going to creep in. Are they the kind of thing that are significant or are they insignificant, like maybe a, a misspelled word or, or grammar or things like that? And so that's what critics look like. Now, let's just, let's just do one comparison. I, I uh, actually spent some time Friday with the, the men at Axios going through this. We're going to do this at Abide on uh, Tuesday. I just want to give you a quick Comparison, just running this a little bit so you, you understand how reliable the manuscript evidence is for the New Testament. Okay, so these three guys basically give us most of what we know about Roman history, Livy, Tacitus, and Suetonius. And so when you look at just those first two criteria, okay, let's look at the number of manuscripts and the time span between the original and the co- first copy. With Livy, your first copy comes around 400 years after the original writing. In terms of the number of manuscripts, we have about 150 copies. With Tacitus, the first comes between 750 and 950 years after the original writing. You've got less manuscript copies. You've got about 33. And then with Suetonius, you have an 800-year time gap between the original and our first manuscript, and you have about 200 copies. So altogether, you have, what, 183 copies uh, of the manuscripts that give us much of what we know about Roman history. The earliest comes 400 years later, but the vast majority come almost 800 years or later, right? Now, let's compare this to the New Testament manuscripts. When it comes to the New Testament, our earliest manuscripts are dated anywhere between about 25 and 50 years from the original writing. In fact, our earliest manuscript is a little fragment called P52, that has parts of the Gospel of John on it. And it's dated anywhere between 115, 150 A.D. John writes in 9095. So you have a very short time span. You have like uh, almost 124 manuscripts just in the first 300 years of, uh, of, of church history. And when you look at the manuscripts, you take the Greek manuscripts, and then quickly the Bible is translated in other languages like Latin and Coptic and Syriac and Arabic. You take the, the, the total number of manuscripts, you're looking at 20,000 plus. There's no comparison. The closest competitor would be Homer's Iliad, where you have maybe 2,300 or so uh, manuscripts. But nothing else comes even close. So if you want to say that the Bible has somehow uh, been lost through time, guess what? You have to throw out all of ancient history to be intellectually honest with that one. So what does this do? This gives us confidence that what we are reading now has been divinely preserved. That's exciting stuff, isn't it? Okay, let's look at the issue of corroboration. Uh, so the, the, the Bible can be corroborated with two different kinds of tests. We might be able to say that you've got internal tests, internal things that inter- are internal to the document, and then external tests, things outside of the document. So let me give you an example of an internal test. Historians will, will, will point to different principles 
to reconstruct or, or to, to determine the trustworthiness of something. So one example might be what we call the principle of embarrassment. This is where a, a, a writer uh, includes embarrassing material about himself or herself or his community. Right now, we know human nature. Human nature is to cover up the, the embarrassing details. Like, I don't meet somebody for the first time and say, hey, yeah, let me, let me tell you about these really embarrassing things that happened to me recently. Or, you know, no, we, we cover those things up. And so if someone includes embarrassing detail, that is evidence that they are telling the truth. Okay? So here is a, an example of an embarrassing detail in the scriptures. I mean, are the scriptures filled with embarrassing details? Of course. And so one of them is uh, uh, the, the first eyewitnesses to the empty tomb of Jesus. Who are the first eyewitnesses? It's women, right? And when you look at the cultural context, first century Palestine and the Roman Empire, you, you, you understand that women were looked at as less than second-class citizens. Often, uh, their, their, their testimony was not even admissible in a court of law because they were looked at as unreliable or even worse. In fact, there's a Greek philosopher, Celsus, who is a, 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 an antagonist of Christianity in the second century AD. One of his arguments against Christianity was that the written accounts of the resurrection are based on the eyewitness testimony of women... And, of course, we all know women are hysterical, right? And that's not me. I'm not saying that. That's not me. That's Celsus. Okay, that's Celsus. Let's just be clear. That was his argument. That was his argument against Christianity. And so, look, it, it makes sense that if you, if you want to kind of make this resurrection thing up, you want to try and get this off the ground and, and make up this kind of myth, you don't put women at the tomb as your first eyewitnesses. And why would you include that kind of detail if it wasn't actually true? That's the kind of internal corroboration that we find in Scripture. How about externally? Well, if you want to be a really good liar, okay, don't tell your kids this, but if you want to be a really good liar, don't include lots of detail, right? Because when you include lots of detail, we can go check those things out. In fact, this is how I catch my kids in lies, I, they say something, and I'm like, that doesn't sound right. So I just start asking questions. Okay, who did you go with? Oh, yeah. Okay, what time was that at? Oh, what time did you get back? Oh, where'd you park? Oh, oh really? Oh. And after enough questions, they hang themselves, okay? <laughs> <laughs> because now I have details that I can corroborate. Well, guess what? The Bible is filled with all kinds of specific detail. It names people, places, things. And time and time and time again, there is external corroboration. So let's take uh, this individual, Caiaphas, who's mentioned multiple times in the Gospels, uh, as an example. He is the high priest, uh, the Jewish high priest during the time of Jesus' ministry, right? He was part of the, uh, the Sadducees, and uh, they held a majority seat in the Sanhedrin, right, the, the Jewish high court, and we have external evidence, evidence outside of the Bible that corroborates the existence of Caiaphas. Number one, you have the first century historian Josephus, who's looked at as the most reliable extra-biblical uh, source on Caiaphas. But in addition, archaeology has given us some powerful evidence. In 1990, 
the Caiaphas ossuary was discovered. The, an ossuary is simply a bone box. And Jews would, would, would take uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the bones of someone and eventually put them in a bone box to await the final resurrection. And so uh, archaeologists uncovered this. There's an inscription on there with a reference to Caiaphas and, uh, and, and have looked and said, this is, this is evidence for the Caiaphas of the New Testament. And so this is just one example of literally thousands and thousands of archaeological evidences for the reliability of Scripture. So that would be the historical corroboration inside and outside. Okay, let's look at a couple more. Uh, unity. You've got the unity of Scripture, right? Think about the nature of this book. It's written by 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years in 13 different countries on three different continents, different time periods, different cultures. And yet when you read through Scripture, what do you get? One unified, coherent story. Now, what, what makes sense of that? Coincidence? No, I think that's powerful evidence. The unity of the Bible is powerful evidence that there's one divine author behind the human authors who he's working through. Okay? So this would be the argument from unity. You have prophetic fulfillment. Prophetic fulfillment. There are things that are foretold hundreds of years before. uh, uh, They're they're, uh, prophesied hundreds of years before they're fulfilled. So you have prophetic fulfillment. Here's just a list of, of prophecies regarding Jesus. Okay, uh, for example, I'll just reference the birthplace of the Messiah, Micah 5, 2, right? You got the birthplace of the Messiah in Bethlehem. Well, the book of Micah can be dated by some of the most liberal dating as coming to us somewhere between 740 and 700 BC, 700 years prior to the birth of Christ. And so you have these, prof- these prophecies that are fulfilled. Again, what best explains that? Well, how about a being who has the relevant knowledge of the future? And so these are just examples of the different kinds of evidence that give us confidence that this book is no ordinary book, but it actually comes to us from God, the God who created this universe, and therefore it is authoritative. This is a powerful argument for the authority of God's word. Okay. Now, lest we think, hey, that was kind of a fun intellectual exercise, this knowledge has huge implications, doesn't it? So here's the question we need to be asking now. If this is the case, if we have powerful evidence, the Bible is God's word, well, then the question becomes, what is the proper response to God's word and to his authority that's exercised in his word? What's the proper response? Let me suggest four responses that I think are in order. Number one, we should be reading it. And you might think, yeah, that's that's obvious, right? Of course, yeah, I'm supposed to be reading the Bible. We can't take that for granted anymore. When you look at the data on Christians and Bible reading, we many of us simply do not read it. And so we need to read it. Uh, And what I want to do is not just, I don't want to make you feel guilty. I I actually want to encourage you and and give you maybe some practical ideas on this, okay? Because I've been thinking a lot about this for the last couple of months. How how can we maybe practically in a very busy, technologically oriented world that's just, you know, calling out to us from all directions, how can we make 
scripture, the reading of scripture, just a regular practice in our lives. So here are just some possible ideas. Number one, maybe before dinner, before dinner, maybe you, uh, you, you just, you pull out your Bible and you read a Psalm as kind of your prayer before, for dinner, right? Sometimes we get in those habits of just kind of saying the same thing in our, 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 you know, prayers over meals. Well, instead let's open up scripture and just read a Psalm and let that be our prayer before meals two or three times a week. How about this? Um, listen to an audio version if you have a commute. Keep an audio version in your car or on Audible, right? Get the Audible app and then purchase an Audible version of the Bible and listen to it while you're driving. Or you've got a lunch break or a different breaks throughout the day where instead of just kind of checking out, instead of just jumping on social media, right? Maybe instead pull out the scripture and read a chapter and slowly go through a book. Or... Read through a book of the Bible as a family. A couple times, two, three times a week. Just say, hey, we're going to sit down and we're just going to read a chapter. We're going to start in maybe the Gospel of Matthew. And we're just going to start reading through one chapter a day. Uh, or just a few chapters a week. Uh, read it to your kids at night. Before you, if you've got young ones, before you put them down, read through maybe a children's Bible. Or as they get older, read through the scriptures with them. Right? And just think of different practical ways that you and I can start reading the scripture more. Okay, here's a second uh, response. Uh, and this one, thought a lot about this one. Uh, this one is reorienting your physical spaces. Because if the Bible is the authoritative word of God, then it should be central in our lives. And, and, uh, and so sometimes what helps us to make it central is actually to or- arrange the physical spaces in our lives in a way that are oriented around scripture. So for instance, right, our homes, when we decorate our homes, our spaces communicate what we value. Decorating isn't just neutral. It says a lot about what we value. In fact, in our spaces, we can create culture. We can create a culture in our home. And it's a very practical reminder. So for instance, maybe you and I need to take a Bible and we need to set it and keep it in the center of our, our kitchen table, if that's where we gather a lot, or on the kitchen counter. Or maybe we keep it on our nightstand so that there's a Bible every night before you go to bed or when you wake up in the morning. Or, uh, or things like that. I've actually told my wife, there's one thing I've been wanting to do for a long time. I just haven't pulled the trigger on it. I want to save up and I want to purchase a, a, an ancient biblical manuscript. Maybe something that's two, three, four, five hundred years old. Maybe something in Latin. And then get it framed beautifully and then uh, put it somewhere prominent in my house. And after prepping for this, I told Aaron, I got to do that. So that there's a testimony in my home to the preservation of God's word, right? So even reorienting our physical spaces. Okay, here's maybe the most difficult response. The third response is then humbly submitting to God's word, right? So realizing that if this is the authoritative word of God, now one of the appropriate responses is that I submit to it. I submit my life to it. And this is a never-ending process, right? Uh, Just last year, I had a great example of this where um, my wife, that mouthpiece of God in our home, confronted me one Sunday morning when I thought I'd been on the road traveling and speaking, wanted to spend some time with Jonah, thought, hey, I'll take Jonah surfing before church, 
kind of woke up too late, thought, well, I, I really need to spend time with my son. Uh, let's go. I'm going to take him. I'll just miss church. And, uh, and my wife confronted me on that. said, really, is this a good reason to miss out on the assembling together of the body? And I was upset at first because I didn't want to submit to that. And, uh, uh, but, but, but thank God she persisted. And I, I realized, yeah, you know what? I have to continue to submit myself to regular fellowship with the body. And that that might not be, in this instance, it wasn't a good excuse for me not to be at church. Right? So we have to submit our living to the authority of God's word. We also have to submit our thinking to God's word. Some of us are maybe influenced by popular Christian authors or popular Christian bloggers who have changed their views on certain things that the church has historically held for 2,000 years and for very good reason. Are we willing to submit our thinking to the word of God or are we submitting it to someone else? Right? And let me give a warning to my brothers and sisters out there. Beware of walking away from the authority of God's word. Because when you walk away from the authority of the Bible, it will lead you to compromising other views. And typically in our culture, it starts with views on sexuality, but then it ends up leading to views about the gospel. And so um, I humbly submit to you to beware of compromising the authority of God's word. Okay, let me wrap this up. A um, couple of resources here for us. Some of us are still wrestling and grappling with real serious questions. And so let me give you a resource. Uh, if there's one book I'd point you to to help establish this, a solid base of knowledge for confidence in God's word, uh, a friend of mine, Jonathan Morrow, wrote a great, great book called Questioning the Bible, 11 Major Challenges to the Bible's Authority, where he lays out the evidence for the scriptures. And that's a great place to start. It's very accessible, very readable, okay? Uh, number two, maybe you're someone who says, hey, I, I want to make the Bible an authority in my home. I've got young kids, and I want to start this very early. Let me point you to a resource that our organization, MAVEN, uh, has in March, March 22nd and 23rd, it's a Friday night, Saturday, we're doing a conference. And the theme of the conference is equipping parents, grandparents, youth pastors, youth leaders, the church, anyone who's working with in discipling kids 0 to 18. Uh, we want to invite you to our conference um, in Laguna Hills. And we've got a great lineup of speakers who are going to equip you. And, and we've got two uh, sessions, and there'll be more material on particular the, the word of God and how do we equip our families with scripture. You can get more information at mavenconferences.com. Uh, lastly, here's another idea, okay? Uh, how many of you are familiar with the Museum of the Bible that opened about two years ago in Washington, D.C.? Yeah. Okay, how about this? How about some, at some point, especially if you have kids in your home still, at some point you invest, instead of going to Hawaii or that, that great vacation, you invest in going and taking your family to Washington, D.C. and spending a couple days at the Museum of the Bible, really learning about the incredible nature of this book and how it has transformed not just individuals but whole societies. Okay, so those are, those are some practical helps. Okay, so I mentioned three responses. Here is the last response. 
What's the appropriate response to God's word? Well, listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. You know what the appropriate response is? It's not just submission. Oh, gosh, all right, I got to do what the Bible says. It's actually delighting in that. We delight in God's word because it's the source of true life. In fact, I want to show you just a, a video clip here that really lays out for us an example of what it looks like to delight in the word of God. This is an Indonesian tribe that receives the New Testament for the first time. Darana nyundi yubuda abna gigip memero. Darana memero kum. Poko yoknalna nyundi gerenja omulatlam siyang wenena. Memero puku wenena ot kemilama. Do wenena ane si ane yaglemla abuga nyundabe elulama. Poko memero kum ni amulatlam siyang wenena. Ongi nyundabe ketsepo. Seni lima po. Sumnili wenena nyundi yubunisin. Mati utsampe wahyu. Gigit tangkal wenena. Wera yoksimna. Ingin, eh, gak, ingin gom, jangan. <laughs> 